From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. While the orange and blue may have been slow to hit the gas against Vanderbilt, once they pressed the pedal to the metal, they didn't look back in a 56 to nothing dispatching of the Commodores. But on a weekend that answered numerous doubts about the resolve of football following the frustrating loss to Georgia, many questions were raised across the street after the sixth-ranked basketball squad lost their sixth straight game to FSU. On today's show, We'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry to discuss the domination of the doors, the swamp coming to life at noon, future dates with the Sun Devils, basketball's discombobulated outing against the Seminoles, and the current chicken sandwich craze in the PAT. But first, any concerns about a hangover for football that lingered into the first half were dashed in the third quarter as Florida boat raced Vandy on their way to a shutout victory. So to open this week's roundtable, we asked Scott and Chris to reflect on the most impressive aspects of the performance. They played a complete game. I mean, Dan Mullen said he thought it was their most complete game of the season in all phases. Uh, Obviously, they passed for 410 yards. Kyle Trask went for 363. We haven't seen a quarterback throw for that many since Tim Tebow in his final game in the Sugar Bowl against Cincinnati. So, the offense put up 56 points. The defense pitched his third shutout of the year. Uh, you know, Mahamu Diabate filling in for the injured Jeremiah Moon. He picks up three sacks, wins SEC Freshman of the Week. Uh, so some young guys got playing time and, and produced, obviously. Uh, they forced turnovers again. We, You know, under two losses uh, this season, Adam, they had not had a sack or forced a turnover, and uh, they returned to that style and the win over Vanderbilt, uh, picked off some passes. Donovan Steiner had a couple, had some sacks. One led to a, a long fumble return for a touchdown by Jonathan Gennard. So really, it was just they, they went out and did what they should have done. I mean, make no mistake, this is a down team for Vanderbilt under Derek Mason. Uh, they were using their scout team quarterback a lot in the second half. So they weren't exactly playing Georgia or LSU, but anytime you know you're coming off a loss like that, you gotta play a noon game. There's always gonna be, I'm sure, a little bit of a question uh in the coaches' minds. How are they gonna respond? And I thought they showed the uh, kind of urgency they needed and you know it was it they were a little uh slowest at times in, in early going, they, they missed on some scoring opportunities, obviously. But once they got those uh, red zone opportunities uh, back and took advantage of them, and the points started piling up pretty fast, especially in the third quarter. And again, it was the it was the kind of response that a team that's in the top 10 in the country should have uh, against the uh, opponent like Vanderbilt. People talk about focusing on yourselves, and Florida's had a few of those games this year. And I mean, I'm just looking at the schedule. UT Martin comes in, beat them 45 uh, nothing. Tennessee comes in, you know you're better than Tennessee. You beat them 34 to three. Towson comes in, you know you're not supposed to mess around with Towson. What was it, 38 to nothing? And here comes Vanderbilt in, which was basically last or next to last in basically every um, statistic in the Southeastern Conference. You're supposed to do what you're supposed to do when you're at home, and you beat them 56 nothing. So. 
this kind of stuff reminds me of what they did when Spurrier and Urban Meyer were here. You know, they didn't mess around with a lot of those teams. And, you know, to Scott's point, yeah, they, they missed some scoring opportunities. First drive of the, of the game, went for a fourth down. The second week in a row, because they did it against Georgia, too. Went for a fourth down, didn't convert. Fourth and short, passing the ball, didn't convert. Missed a field goal. I think they threw a couple interceptions in the first half. It's only 14 to nothing. But then 28 points in the third quarter, and I think they averaged uh, uh, over 21 yards of play on 10 plays. And that didn't include an 80-yard uh, fumble return for a touchdown. So, yeah, Vanderbilt comes in, big underdog. You're supposed to beat the hell out of Vanderbilt. You beat the hell out of Vanderbilt. Um, kudos to, to – that's, that, that's coaching. That's having the team prepared, having a plan. Was it perfect? No, it certainly was. The plan was obviously very, very good. The execution wasn't great in the first half. But uh, it certainly improved in the second half, and you send an SEC opponent um, on its way. Now, Fl- Florida, like we said last week, still has a lot to play for. I mean, eight and two. They're in. I mean, they got two games left in the regular season. They're they're basically in total control of uh, of a New Year's Six bowl game for the second straight year, and technically, they're not eliminated from uh, anything mathematically when it comes to the SEC East. Obviously, Georgia. Uh, they do got to win uh, one of those last two uh, SEC games. They're hardly gimmies. They got to play at Auburn and they got to play at home against Texas A&M. And those are uh, two decent teams. So um, all Florida can do is take care of itself. And obviously that comes to winning up at Missouri this week, which they probably should, even though I'm sure we're about to talk about this. Missouri is a different team home and away. But uh, taking care of business at home is uh, is obviously something that, you know, all very good, all the real good teams do. And Florida did this past weekend. Another thing about taking care of business at home that I think is relevant, you guys have been to a lot of these noon games over the years, especially if they're coming off of a disappointing performance like we saw against Georgia. And you have, you know, I mean, 10, 15,000 empty seats, people kind of lingering in late. I was really, really impressed that Gator Nation showed up really from the opening kick. I mean, as soon as the game, as soon as the game came on, you saw a full swamp. And lots of times for noon games against Vandy, you don't see that. And I think it helped get the energy going and really set the, the appropriate tone right from the get-go. Yeah, that's been an emphasis the uh, the program has uh, kind of made to fans. Uh, Scott Strickland uh, will tweet often about that. They're sending a lot of messages on social media, you know, recently to get people in the stands earlier. And it it's evidently is paying off because you're right, Adam. Uh, we we have seen a lot of those games where the vibe inside the swamp is not exactly very swamp-like uh, at kickoff for those early games. But I, I agree with you. I thought for the Vanderbilt game, uh, it was definitely more lively than I've seen in the past. And the players, let's face it, the players they love that. I mean, they love when people are there when when the stadium's buzzing a little bit. It gets them juiced and. We have, we've talked about it. We have to roll out of bed and, you know, start warming up and go play a football game in a couple hours. It's, it's not the easiest thing to do, but that's what the schedule called for. And, uh, again, I, I didn't think there was any effects or hangover effects at all. You know, we talked about maybe a couple of those missed scoring opportunities early. Uh, but you sensed even at those missed opportunities, you knew that they were controlling the pace of the game. They were going to work out some of the execution uh, missteps there. Uh, the game was never in doubt, and that, that's a credit to, obviously, the coaching staff, the players, and you will give a hat tip to the fans. Well, we'll see if they roll out up in Missouri this weekend because they got to get up and go to an 11 o'clock game uh, yeah. in the Show Me State. So uh, it, it'll be exactly the opposite for Florida um, in terms of they'll be going into a place. We'll see what the energy is like 
at Missouri, which is, you know, having a pretty much a kind of middling season. But uh, Florida will be waking up in a, in a hotel room and cooler temperatures. Uh, again, 11 o'clock is a weird time to start a football game. But uh, that's what Florida's up against. And they're up against a Missouri team, which is a much different home team than it is a road team. And, and I'm, when I say much different, I mean much different. You're talking about 5-0 and at home. 0-4 on the road, and I mean the numbers are, are pronounced. I mean they've outscored opponents at home by a combined 182 to 28, and they've been outscored on the road 114 to 52. Oh. They're averaging 462 yards a game at home and only 319 a game on the road. Uh, their last at road outing obviously was Georgia. They lost 27 nothing. Only had 198 yards of total offense. Again, that's against a great Georgia defense. And they were also without a uh, quarterback, Kelly Bryant, the, the Clemson transfer. But, I mean, here goes Florida. And, obviously, fans don't have to be reminded what's happened in the last two years. Florida has just been uh, destroyed by, by a total of 50 points the last two games. They played uh, Missouri, including you know a really good a 10-win team last year that came into uh, Florida field and, and won 38-17. So uh, don't take anything for granted. If you're a good program at home and you take care of business at home, then you're supposed to be a good program on the road and go into a place with the proper respect for an opponent, uh, with proper knowledge of the opponent and knowing that what they're capable of doing at home and have that respect for them and start hitting the boxes that the that the coaches have planned for you in the game plan. Because, uh, I mean, their, their average score at home is a 40-7 to 7 win in those five games. Now, granted, they – haven't played a great home schedule. The only two uh, SEC opponents they played at home are South Carolina and Ole Miss. But uh, Florida needs to go there understanding that, um, remembering maybe what Missouri did to them last year and what they did to them two years ago up there in Columbia. Never, uh, never an easy situation for the Gators to go up there. It's hard to believe that we're already at this point, but including Missouri, uh, there's only two more games left in Florida's season which is it's wild to think about it. But again, they started a week earlier than everybody else and then had these buys spaced throughout. But I want to talk about what happens here that influences the future, because I think that's already where a lot of fans are looking. OK, well, what's going to happen now that lays the groundwork for next year? And of course, specifically, that has to do with the quarterbacks. We saw a little more of Emory Jones against Vanderbilt. Uh, and I think a lot of people are curious, well, is there a plan to get him more involved in the ensuing games or is it still going to be sort of on that limited basis? And, you know, next year is next year. What do you guys see as far as how the quarterback situation shakes out over these final few games? Well, the quarterback situation came up this week, and it really wasn't so much about Emory Jones as it was Felipe Franks. Uh, and we'll we'll talk about all of them. Um, you know, Dan Mullen was asked about Felipe this week, and basically, you know, just how he's doing in his rehab. He got his cast off this week, but he said it would be uh, very fortunate for Florida if Felipe was back in time for spring camp. With his injury and with its severity, he's still pretty far away from getting back out on the football field. Um, Emory Jones, I mean, I think the plan is still there. I don't think anything's changing drastically in what we've seen so far, Adam, this season. I think when the opportunity's there and the game flow fits him playing more, getting some more series, I think you'll see it. But Kyle Trask is clearly the the quarterback of this team right now. He's uh, coming off the best passing game of his career. And one thing we've learned about this team in 2019, I mean, this is a passing team. It's their bread and butter. It's how they move the ball. They're not their running game. Uh, you know, I think about round midseason, I think we started to realize, you know, they're just not going to have a, a power running game, even though they got some good backs and uh, Michael P. Ryan and Damian Pierce. 
the offensive line is not to where Dan Mullen and the offensive staff can just say, okay, we're going to line up, we're going to run the ball 40 times. And that's just not the way this team's built. Uh, so when you ask what are these things uh, important down the stretch here, to me, I mean, first of all, let's start with the obvious. I mean, they got two games left. They win both, as Chris said earlier. They hold their own destiny to a, a New Year's Six Bowl. And there's still an outside shot at the SEC East. Very unlikely, but I've seen stranger things in uh, Georgia possibly losing to a couple of quality opponents like Auburn and Uh Beyond that, you know, you're wanting to obviously start to build some for next season and, and get young players like we saw Ethan White last week make his first career start on the offensive line with Brett Hagee out. Uh, Richard Garage has made a couple of starts now. I mean, these guys are the future up front. So you're just looking for Mahamu Diabate. We saw him have his breakout game in the Jeremiah Moon's absence. So they'll take as many young guys getting quality reps and producing as they can get down the stretch here and then going into bowl season where they'll have those 15 additional practices. Uh, but to me, the bigger quarterback story will be answered, you know, after the season. You know, there's always going to be speculation uh, about a guy like Emory Jones. Is he going to transfer? Is he going to stay? I just think it's too early for that. I mean, from everything that Emory Jones has said, from everything that Dan Mullen said, there's no indication that he's uh, transferring or is serious about transferring. Uh, but it is going to be a, a very intriguing spring or whenever Felipe Franks does get back and if Emory Jones hangs around, how that all plays out because uh, Trask and the way he's played has changed that dynamic uh, tremendously. In terms of the uh, the future, we're talking about next year. That's pretty close when you compare it to 10 years, which is uh, where more of the scheduling news came from this week. And Scott, we saw a lot of this over the summer as well with these announcements of these home-and-home home series in the way-off distant future. And Florida added another one of those this week that's going to, again, increase their, uh, their, their miles to the West Coast. Yeah, it's been a while since the Gators have uh, played out West. I mean, like many, many years. But in the recent months, you know, you've got the the matchup home and home with Colorado. You've got one with Texas. You've got one with Utah. And now you've got one with Arizona State. In 2028, the Gators will go out to Tempe. Uh, and in 2031, the Sun Devils uh, come to Gainesville. So it continues a trend that you're seeing. Not only, you're seeing, obviously, with the Gators and Scott Strickland. That's been one of the, the things that fans have said they wanted. Uh, he's trying to make it happen, but it's also a trend across the country because, uh, you know, as we've sp- talked about fans, I think the days of scheduling the lower level opponents for an easy win, doing that two or three times a year and not having a sellout crowd or really a, a great stadium environment. I think those, those days appear to be passing by and, uh, I, I like it. I think it's a good thing. I mean, Florida and Arizona state, uh, they haven't played before. Florida, Texas, it's been decades. Uh, Florida, Utah is a new one. So, I mean, there's just a lot of it. Those, those are intriguing, not only from a, a competitive standpoint, just seeing two schools that don't usually play, but also it gives fans reason to go on the road. Uh, fans don't travel to road games like they used to because they're going to the same places every other year. And these opportunities are new places to go. And uh, I think it's uh, it's good for everybody involved. Yeah, just to put it in context, um, from 1992, Jeremy Foley's uh, first year as AD, and this is just as Scouts mentioned how it was the way of the world in the 90s and what have you. From 1992 until he exited as athletic director in 2016, Florida played 
zero non-conference games outside the state of Florida. None. The last one was Syracuse in 1991. Bill Arnsberger was the athletic director then. Okay. Since Scott Strickland has become AD and this new approach of, of fan experience and, you know, kind of catering to what excitement of what people want. Uh, just look at those games that he's added. All of them, you know, on the other side of the Mississippi River. And I tell you what, I don't think he's done yet. I think he's still out there trying to get some other kind of intriguing games that are going to, you know, and, and we didn't, and Scott, you didn't mention it in there. And granted, these, it's a home state game, but I think there, aren't there two other Miami games in there too? Yeah, 2024 in Gainesville, 2025 in Miami. Those years eventually will get here in Florida. We'll have a much more attractive uh, schedule. And I, I tell you what, I was at that Syracuse game in, in 1991, and I think it was a home-and-home home payback. I think Florida played uh, hosted Syracuse. I want to say it was like something like in 1986 maybe, and then didn't go to Syracuse until 1991. And I'm sure they regret doing that because Syracuse ran a reverse on the opening kickoff and ended up just beating the hell out of them. I think the final score was 38-21, to 21, and that was the year, of course, Florida won its first SEC championship. Uh, in Steve Spurrier's second season. But um, those games are always worthwhile, always exciting, and the build-up to them is always good. And and granted, uh, that's a long time to wait to go to Tempe because I like going out to Arizona and what have you, but uh, not that I will – not that I'll be around then, uh, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> Alive or still working or both? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'll be out there in spirit maybe when the Gators go to uh, to play, play in Tempe. But uh, it's certainly a fresh approach, and – and certainly Florida fans can't complain, and nobody can point fingers at the Gators like they have this season. Saying, why are you playing two uh, FCS teams? How many? I think one of ten teams in the country playing two FCS teams, but that's the way it's worked out, but uh, things are going to be changed down the line. Turning our attention to basketball, uh, not the conversation I think that we either thought or hoped we'd be having after the FSU game, but you know, Chris, we talked about it last week. There was a lot of buildup to that FSU game, the five-game losing streak, the way that Florida was headed relative to where FSU was. The stage was really primed for a real coming-out party for the Gators to open this highly, highly touted and hyped season, and uh, it, it just did not happen at all. So I'm curious, as you look back on that, uh, what went wrong? What went wrong? Well, a lot. Um, obviously, <laughs> I mean, they, I mean, it was a four point game at halftime, but you, you just felt like something that things were off, um, and never really on. Maybe they got caught up in the expectations. Uh, maybe they got caught up in the way Florida state defends, you know, the names change up there, but the way Leonard Hamilton's teams play won't necessarily do that. Uh, but I tell you what, I, you know, so, as somebody who goes to practice all the time and watches what you're trying to do in practice, what the plan is to take into a game. And I sat there, I, I sit down there on the baseline and I watched and I, I was stunned at how many times Florida ran plays for their post guys. Uh, and you're talking about one of the best post players in the country and Kerry Blackshear Jr. How many times he had his man sealed? How many times they ran pick and rolls where he where he slipped through, whether it's him or Omar Payne a couple times, and even Jason Jatobo at least once, where they didn't get him the ball. And the plan for this team, having a la- having landed um, the biggest grad transfer in the, in, in the country in Kerry Blackshear, was to start implementing some kind of a post play. And Kerry Blackshear uh, kept getting open and kept not getting the ball. Now, that, that's going to be addressed down the line. And why it happened, I, I don't know, because the team was off Monday, didn't return to practice till Tuesday. They have a game Thursday night against Towson. Um, but uh, the execution 
of what Florida was trying to do wasn't there. There, there wasn't the dump-ins, the, the, the looks inside. There weren't the extra passes that, that you see in practice that you see from really unselfish teams uh, that, have been, that have been here in the past. And when you start trying to force things or you don't take advantage of, of, the, of the plays that FSU does give you, I mean, they're going to eat you alive. I mean, their defense is, is terrific. And they extend on you. They make you uncomfortable. And when you play them early on in the season with a, with a young team, you get exposed. And that's what, Flo- that's what happened with Florida last year with a bunch of young guys. And that's what happened with them this year, uh, even with, a, with an older guy inside. Um, Mike White made the point, and it, it is a valid point. And even afterwards, he goes, the reality of it all, this is a team with a grad transfer who just got here, uh, three sophomores that lost 16 games last season, and five freshmen who have no idea what it takes to win a high-level basketball game. And it was all on display, not in a good way. In that game against Florida State, it couldn't have come at a worse time. Uh, it was Sunday afternoon. There were 10,000 people in there waiting to see uh, uh, the, the sixth-ranked team in the country. And they got what looked like the 76th-ranked team in the country or the 106th-ranked team in the country. It was not a good performance, but a lot of the issues that went on with that basketball team that day are correctable. And they need to be corrected. They need to be corrected soon because, uh, again, it's a, a Towson team at home on, on Thursday Florida needs to win that game, obviously, but then they go on the road uh, extendedly. Uh, they go, on, they play at UConn on Sunday, and they flip it around and go up and play in the Charleston Classic, where they conceive, could conceivably play. Uh, they play St. Joe's right out of the box. They could play Miami the next day, and could play Xavier or somebody else. Uh, obviously, in a, it's a it's a three team tournament, regardless. But uh, some things have to be fixed if they anticipate having any kind of a early kind of season success. Hmm. You know, certainly basketball is a lot different than football, but, you know, bad losses are bad losses. People are going to react to them. And in a lot of cases, they're going to overreact. And that's what uh, that's what Twitter gives us the window into. So I guess what I would what I'd ask you, Chris, is based on what you just intrinsically know about this team relative to what you saw in game two that everybody else saw, what level of concern or alarm do you think is appropriate? Well, I think it was alarming because of, of, of two things. Because it's FSU, first of all. The mm-hmm. fans are, are tired of losing to Florida State in basketball. I mean, uh, uh, six straight times, uh, That's <laughs> they actually care about it enough. Um, I mean, they, they were, what was it, last year it was five straight for football, right? Mm-hmm. Before they finally broke that. Leonard Hamilton now has a 10-8 and record against the Gators. Um, uh, he's, uh, he's five and zero against Mike White. I mean, that, that's frustrating. There's probably some level of frustration to the point where, look, I mean, if you're going to get Florida state, this, this looked like the time you were going to get them because they had lost the bulk of, uh, their team They went to sweet 16 last year, went to the elite eight the year before the guys that really gave Florida problems last season and year before that Terrence Mann, uh, fee Kabangali. Uh, Chris Kumadage, the seven four guy, they're all gone. So now you had two teams that were both breaking in a lot of new guys, and one just looked uh, totally more prepared than the other. And uh, Mike White was embarrassed by it. He said so afterwards. And the level of alarm would be team just didn't look cohesive in in any way. But if you look at film and see where the mistakes were, uh, like the coaching staff has done, and the coaching staff has and will address with this with this team they got to find out why they didn't do what they're supposed to do and that and i'm sure that's frustrating for the coaches uh basketball isn't like football and football i'd say 70 percent of the mistakes that are made in a football game 
are right there for everybody to see. Basketball goes by too fast. The casual basketball fan, you know, just to call it like it is, uh, probably doesn't know what's going on or why that guy, why that guy just got that basket. And I'm not saying it's all the time, but a lot of the times. That's what film breakdown is for. And those co- the coaches are going to spend a lot of time in the film room showing their players exactly what they did wrong, exactly what they missed. Because I think Andrew Nemar is going to be kicking himself when he when he sees. Maybe you know I thought about this not to kind of go stream of consciousness on you. But let's remember the last for years, Florida hasn't had anyone to dump it into. And certainly this group last year, they couldn't just chuck the ball into Kavarius Hayes and let him go do something. So there may be something to that also. They've certainly practiced enough trying to get the ball into Kerry Blackshear, but doing it in a game and doing it against a team against Florida State are, are, is a different kind of animal. But that's something this team has to embrace uh, as far as its identity. They have to start becoming more of an interior team because they have a great interior weapon. And not only is he a great interior weapon with the ball, but when he's double teamed and they fire the post, he's an outstanding uh, passer from down there. So um, he needs more touches. He was 0 for 5 from the floor. He got fouled. He went to the free throw line 12 times and made 10. Um, He got hit a couple times that they did not call fouls on. He needs much more touches than he got in that game, and they need to find him because he is doing his job. Now those guards got to do theirs and get him with basketball. So we'll see if basketball can uh, can turn things around next two games, Thursday against Towson, Sunday against UConn. Uh, but right now I want to talk about the PAT. And I'm inspired this week by the, the national craze around the Popeye's chicken sandwich, which may be one of the best marketing campaigns in recent history, the way they have just taken it directly to Chick-fil-A's doorstep. Uh, I have not had the sandwich. I do not eat fried chicken. It's one of my my many uh, my many pains of life is I cannot eat fried food. But you hear the, the debate. People say, oh, it's so much better. Oh, it's not better. I want to know from you guys, when you hear stories about people waiting in hours-long lines, they get in fights over this, what is the one food from one particular place even that you are willing to, to fight for. Well, you know what? I mean, I, I, let's go local first of all. I mean, there's a there's one place in town where I will wait to eat, and that's the top. Okay, because uh, uh, the people that are listening to this that are Gainesvillians have been to the top and had whatever kind of hamburger that they prefer in there, and it's not often that you can go in there and get a seat. You're going to wait 45 minutes. You're going to wait an hour, and I'll wait just about anywhere if there's a bar. Okay, because I, <laughs> I can sit there. I can sit there and have a beer or two and, uh, and, and, you know, watch a game on TV or something like that. So there needs to be a reason for me if I'm going to wait on anything that's at, to eat. I need to have a, a place where I can hang out a little bit to do so. And there has to be a payout, obviously, on the back end, which is what we're talking about here. I don't know that I can wait in line for a fried chicken sandwich. What do you think, Scott? Where would you wait? I'll be honest with you guys. I, I'm kind of – I laugh at this whole Popeye's thing and- and as someone who does like Popeyes, I think it's by far the best fried chicken out there. I feel bad for Adam that he can't eat fried food. You just won't eat fried food. I can't eat fried food, but don't don't feel badly for me. The mere smell of it makes me nauseous, so I don't feel like I'm okay. missing anything. I mean, I don't eat a lot of fried food, obviously, for health reasons. It's not good for you, but I love uh, I, once every couple of months of going over to Popeyes. And I'm, I'm not a big Chick-fil-A person. so I love know, Chick-fil-A. Yeah, see the whole battle here. I'm more of a Popeyes guy. I have not had their sandwich, but having said all that, if I was 
went over to Popeye's and I wanted the sandwich and I had to wait more than five minutes, I would leave. <laughs> I always tell people this story, like when, since this has popped up, I remember when I lived in Tampa, I lived in the Carrollwood neighborhood. This was about 20 years ago. And they put a new steak and shake there. And I would pass it every day going out of my apartment complex. I mean, for two or three weeks, man, the place had a line out the door. Newspaper did a story on it. And I'm thinking, you know, there's like a McDonald's and a Burger King right around the corner. There's no way I'm going to wait in line to get a hamburger from Steak and Shake. But a lot of people do. So I guess my to answer your question is, I don't know if there's anywhere where I would wait that long to get a piece of food. But if there's one place I would wait, and I've eaten in a lot of really good restaurants, as I'm sure you guys have all over the country. If there's one place that I've eaten in my life that I probably would wait in line for a while, it's Burns Steakhouse in Tampa. There you that's go. Probably my, that's my all-time favorite restaurant in terms of high-quality food, ambiance. I just love that place. Don't go to it very often, obviously. I, I don't make the kind of money you guys do. But, uh, <laughs> it is uh, – anyway – Am I, I'm, no, I'm waiting nowhere for fast food. Well, you guys are going to be taking uh, divergent paths this weekend. Scott will be with football in frigid Missouri, and Chris will be with basketball in frigid Connecticut. So either way, you're going to be cold. But they got tons of content coming up on FloridaGators.com. You can also find it at Gators Scott, at Gators Chris on Twitter. Uh, guys, stay warm, and thank you so much. Thanks, Adam. See you, Adam. You often hear success stories in sports driven by doubt, where an individual rises to a level largely to prove their doubters wrong. And while many do triumph despite the detractors, it's rare they get to bring it right to the doorstep of those who sold them short. That's what makes LaMichael P. Ryan's story unique, with the biggest moment of the Alabama native's career coming directly at the expense of the hometown school that never saw it coming. We got to that detail in due time, but began our chat with the senior running back by discussing the drive that led them to victory over Vanderbilt. Uh, I just feel like it comes with just just being in the program, um, just another year. Just um, a lot of guys know what to expect and things like that. And I just think um, a lot of guys didn't want that same outcomes last year. Coming in after a big game, big uh, big loss, man. Uh, we didn't have one anybody down at practice uh, during the Vandy week, so everybody came in with a high intensity, ready to go. I want to take things back now. If we can talk about kind of where you came from, your family, where you grew up. Can you take us through the, the early years for you? I played at Theodore High School in Theodore, Alabama. I'm originally from Mobile, Alabama, but, I mean, I had a few good years in, in high school. Things worked out for me. Um, I came down here with my 10th grade summer, and my 10th grade summer, uh, and tried to earn a scholarship here. So, um, I mean, I'm a diehard Gator fan. Everything that I've done up to this point, has um, nothing has been given to me. So, um, it's been a nice long road. Do you have any siblings that, uh, that helped you growing up in terms of getting into football? I have a little brothers, but um, that's pretty much my motivation. I got um, a cousin that's in the league right now, so my GP run. Um, but mostly, man, it's just come from my family. That's what makes me go so hard. Where did football come from for you? If you didn't have older siblings that got you into it, where, where did the inspiration come from to start playing? Um, just so my mom and my, my dad always kept me in since I was four years old, so I always had a love for the game. But um being able to just see um, other people and just seeing like people in my family, like my cousin uh, in the NFL, it just made me open my eyes and realize I have the same opportunity if I just go hard all the time. What got you 
at the running back spot? Were you always a, a running back? And what made you gravitate to that spot on the field? Uh, honestly, um, my ninth grade year, I was kind of everywhere and just playing all types of positions and things like that. So I was I was playing corner at first, honestly. So uh, I wasn't even an offensive player in my ninth grade year in uh, high school. Then all of a sudden, it was the end of my ninth grade year. I guess started gaining a little weight. I was like 160, 160 at this time. And then going into my 10th grade year, I had gained like 40 pounds, 30, 40 pounds. Ended up 195 uh, going to my 10th grade year. So my coach decided me to move me to running back. You know, been up here ever since. Is that the point where you sort of fell in love with the game? Like, at what stage did you sort of say, wait a minute, this is something I really want to commit myself to and, and put a lot of work toward? Oh, uh, it was after my 10th grade year. I had um, got my first offer from Mississippi State. So, uh, at running back. So, I was like, uh, maybe this is my position and what I'm going to need to just keep working at and just keep going, going forward. You mentioned Samaji being in the league, and I know you have some other famous relatives that play. So, can you tell us about all the, the guys you're connected to that have played football at a high level and how they helped you as you've grown and developed? Um, guys like Miles Jack, a good uh, family friend of mine, um, always keep in touch with him as well. Um, just having guys like that. Um, guys like I went to school with Jamie Mosley, uh, uh, CJ Mosley, uh, guys that I had chances to uh, growing up looking at. Um, they inspired me to just, just keep going and realize that football can be a big thing going for me. You mentioned coming to, to Florida back in, in 2014. Uh, I read that you actually bought your own bus ticket to make that trip just because you wanted to get in front of the coaches and go to a camp. Can you talk about why you did that? Why was it important to you to make that much effort to be seen by Florida? Uh, because, like I said, that was my favorite school. Uh, I really didn't have any contact and anything with them. Like They didn't know anything about me. So I really just wanted to make sure um, I get a chance to get eye-to-eye eye eye with those guys and um, just show them that I'm a, I'm a good player and I'm going to bust my tail just to give them all, all the time. And then I wanted them wanted to be on their radar. What made Florida your favorite school? Why did you like the Gators even before you were part of the program? Um, just the swag, just seeing the tradition of them winning games and things like that. Um, during the Tebow era and uh, things like that, man, watching guys like Percy Harvey, Jeff Gumps, Chris Rainey, uh, just watching the style and how the Florida Gators play, man, that's just uh, something that I wanted to be a part of. So you get the offer, and then right before signing day, an offer comes in from Alabama. Uh, you're from Alabama. What did it mean to get that offer from them at the last minute, and why did you stick with the Gators even despite having that interest? Honestly, I was uh, I was already committed to Florida. I made my commitment early in the year. I mean, I always knew that was my dream school. That's somewhere I wanted to go. Um, and I know what everything I had went to just to get that offer. I didn't want to uh, look back on that and then think I made the wrong, wrong decision. I mean, Alabama's a great school, great program. Uh, I grew up liking them as well. Uh, outside of Florida, Florida's not playing. I watch Alabama all the time, but my heart was going with the Gators. Once you got on campus, which upperclassmen mentored you and, and taught you the most as you made that transition? Um, I'd probably say guys like, uh, in my, uh, since I play running back, it'll probably be Jordan Scarlett, a uh, guy I really looked up to everything. And when I was having downtimes as a freshman, he always encouraged me just to just keep working and fight adversity and things like that. Uh, just a good uh, role model and big brother for me. As you've grown throughout your career, 
Are there any underclassmen you feel like you've had the biggest impact on that you've similarly taken under your wing? I wouldn't say taken under my wing, but uh, just being a guy who always uh, being able to talk to someone and see eye to eye, I probably say every guy in the running back room. That's just, those guys, uh, I mean, we just talk day in, day out. we with each other 24-7. Um, but I have a great relationship with those guys, and always we just encourage each other to get better. It seems this is just a, a part of the landscape now in college football, but midway through your career, there's a coaching change, and I know that that made you seriously consider leaving because of your connection to the old staff. Can you just take us through kind of your thought process as that all went down and why you ended up staying at Florida despite having that initial hesitation? Well, for a little moment, I mean, I was a little depressed and things like that uh, because uh, I've had three running back coaches since I've been at Florida. So, um, I mean, just having to go through all that, it just made me realize uh, don't go to a school for a coach and go to a school just because you want to go to that school. So, um, I know I've been taking like a business like approach ever since, man. So it's, I feel like it was a learning experience for me. Well, I'm sure a big part of that too was having Dan Mullen come in because you mentioned that one of your first offers was from Mississippi State. So how important was it that Coach Mullen was the guy that came in to replace Coach Mack in terms of your staying and, and being comfortable? Honestly, he has a great scheme, knows how to win. He's been at Florida before. Uh, he's he know he know how Florida is and what it is to put Florida back on top, man. He's been doing a great job ever since. You talked about some of your uh, your previous running back coaches. You've had three of them during your time. What's something that you learned from each of them that, that's helped you as you've grown? I mean, it's just two different things from every coach. Um, right now, I have Coach Knox, and um, he's more of a, a detail type of guy. Um, everything is a business-like approach with him. Uh, he, ke- he keeps me um, focused on a lot of things. I never lose track of anything with Coach Knox. Uh, it's always like a business-like approach. It's like I'm in the NFL right now, just just being here with him. He's a great guy. Uh, always make sure I'm on top of everything in my game. And um, guys like Coach Skip, my first running back coach when I first got here, uh, he was just teaching me the ins and out of the football and just little things like protecting the ball and things like that. He was big on, and uh, Coach Sider was more people's person. Uh, he was down for the players. I always knew how it was to be an athlete, so he kind of understand where I was coming from with everything. You talked about in some ways it feels like you are in the NFL already, but you did have the chance to leave early last year after having a huge season and go into the draft and ultimately decided to come back for one more year. Can you take us through your thought process on that decision and how you came to it? I mean, it was a big Big time decision, uh, kind of hard to think about my things. So I just had to really sit down with my parents and, um, and look in the mirror and just realize what I really wanted to do. And um, that was come back and be a Gator for one more year. And uh, honestly, it has been working out so good for me. Um, I wouldn't wish anything else. I'm glad it turned out how I did. As you start to look back, and I'm sure when you're still in the middle of it, you're not doing this as often, but if you did take a step back and look at your career kind of on the whole, what moments, what games stand out to you the most? Oh, man, it's a lot of moments, man. I didn't have a lot of big games. Uh, if I had to just say a game from each year, though, I'd probably say my freshman year against LSU and uh, making it to the SC Championship, just getting that experience. Uh, my sophomore year, just biggest moments probably was just just going through adversity. And that's when my adversity hit, I feel like, my sophomore year because I lost my head coach middle of the season. So it was kind of crazy. I never had anything happen like that to me. But 
my junior year, it'll probably win in the Peach Bowl. That was a big moment for me. Having a good season, man, just finishing off on a good note like that. And I say this year, probably right now, Auburn game, when I had a long touchdown, that's probably my biggest moment of the year so far. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I know that was uh, particularly meaningful for you, especially because of some feedback you got during recruiting from Coach Malzahn and from Auburn. So can you share that story with us and, and how that sort of came full circle? Um, Honestly, man, it was just um, at the time they felt like I wasn't fit for their program and things like that. So um, I kind of kept that with me, um, knowing that we were going to play them this year. So uh, it was just in the back of my mind, something I always had on my chest, and I had to get it off. And, uh, I'm glad I had a chance to make a big time playing that game. And any trash talk after that? Did you get anything you'd been waiting a long time to say to anybody that that gave you a, a chance to say? Uh, no, I re- pretty much kept everything to myself. But um, I just wanted people to know that 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 they, that they did say that to me. But uh, besides that, I really wasn't doing too much trash talking like that. So having that carrot for a while, you know, you said that was important to you. What keeps you going once you get past that? You know, what's your next? What's the next thing you're striving for that motivates you now that you've conquered that part of it? Just um, coming in every single day, being consistent, because um, I feel like that's my biggest thing. Just trying to come in, trying to get better every single day, because I know I can be better than than, than yesterday. So um, just coming in and being consistent, man, not being complacent, being myself all the time, and just being a guy who people can look forward to and talk to. I'm sure you don't have a lot of free time outside football, especially from talking to your teammates. We hear that often. But when you do have a chance to get away from the field, what are some things you enjoy doing, whether it's hobbies, activities, et cetera? Um, I, mean, I like playing basketball outside of playing, um, outside of playing football and things like that. Um, I'm a big video game guy as well. So. Well, what are we playing? Who are we playing with? Uh, I'm playing 2K, uh, NBA 2K20. Uh, uh, I play with guys like um, I got a, uh, my homeboy from Alabama as well, uh, Juwan Taylor, safety, plays with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably my go-to guy to play with on the game. Tyree Cleveland, guys like that, we'll play a game with those guys. Uh, so this week, they launched the new Disney streaming service. I'm curious what your favorite Disney movie is of all time. Do you have one? Uh, not off the top of my head, I don't, not really. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I was a big high school musical type guy, though. Okay. Is it, you know, there, there's a high school musical series that they, they have now. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah. <laughs> Something to check out when you have some time. Yeah. Um, going into this weekend, bringing things back to football, uh, you guys are getting started at 11 o'clock local time against Missouri. How tough is it getting in the right mindset and the right gear when you're playing that early? Um, just knowing this is an early kickoff, man. Uh, I actually like early kickoffs because you get up and you, you get right to it, and um, it's no waiting or anything like that. So, just got to be prepared a little earlier and things like that, and be ready for the cold air. Um, as long as we do that and fight through adversity, I feel like we'll do pretty good. Yeah, Missouri is a team that you guys have struggled against historically. How much stock do you put in that? How much does that matter as you prepare for this year's game? We're not thinking about any of that. Uh, just play our game um, and just know that someone's taking score of the game and just understand that, like, you want to win, you don't want to lose. couple final things for you. Uh, in two weeks, you're going to be running out of that tunnel one last time on senior day in the swamp. Can you just talk about what that's going to be like for you as you think through it and who's going to be there greeting you at midfield? I mean, it's just going to be a crazy moment, man, because – 
Uh, I didn't put my whole heart in this program and things like that. Just knowing it's going to be my last time, it's going to be crazy, uh, very emotional. So um, I'm kind of ready for that moment. I'm not even going to lie. ready for it. At that moment, if you could go back in time and tell the freshman version of yourself anything, whether it's advice or a tip here or there, what would you say to yourself after four years that you now know you didn't know back then? Uh, I'd probably say just tell myself to uh, just be patient, man. Everything's going to come to you. Um, good things come to those who wait. Final question for you. When you do wrap up your career here soon, what do you want your legacy to be after you leave? How do you want Gator fans to remember your time at Florida? Um, just a, a playmaker, a guy who gave it his all every time, every time he was on the field. Just a person you can always go to for big time plays. Well, Michael, thank you so much for your time. Good luck the rest of the year. And uh, we can't wait to see what you do next. Yes, sir. Thank you. Go Gators. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Follow the Gators as they try to stay on track for 10 wins, taking on Missouri Saturday at noon on CBS and the Gator Sports Network from Learfield IMG College. Then come back next Thursday for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Gainesville. Gainesville.